And it's going to be a great, great time as we build up towards Easter and as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that he is alive. And so we'll be, we'll be examining and we'll be exploring these characters, what they felt, what they saw, and the difference that, that Jesus made in their lives. But before we get into um, this morning's topic, which is Thomas, as you can probably guess from this, this great drama that we had this morning, um, I need to tell you about, about something this last week that is a bit random. If you know me, you know that I really like random information, uh, like probably too much so. A lot of times during my free time, I will just find myself on bunny trails on the internet reading articles about random subjects that I don't really need to know about, but it's interesting, so I, I keep going. And I read, I read articles, I watch videos, I watch documentaries. That's one of my hobbies, I guess you could say. It's a strange one, I'll admit that, but I enjoy it. So this last week, I found myself on a, admittedly, a bit of a strange rabbit trail, and I found a documentary on Netflix called Behind the Curve. Now, this documentary, you may be able to tell from the title, it's a bit difficult. You'd definitely be able to tell by the thumbnail of the documentary, which is what got me hooked. It's a documentary exploring the ever-growing group of people who are arguing that the Earth is flat. It's an interesting group, and it's an ever-growing group. And just so you know my perspective, I don't want to leave you hanging. I personally believe that the Earth is round, sphere, sphere more accurately. Um, in fact, I, like, one of my dreams as a kid was to be an astronaut, and it's really hard to be an astronaut if you believe the Earth is flat. So that's probably why that's, I believe that. And so it's an interesting topic. It's a bit funny. Um, and I... Maybe part of the reason I clicked on it was like, this is going to be interesting. I want to see why people believe this. But as I went on, it wasn't so much funny as it was fascinating to me to discover how a group of people, a large group of people, the documentary followed a group of over 1,000 people that got together for a conference on this subject. It's growing, and it's growing rapidly. And um, what was fascinating to me is how does someone reject such a widely held belief that we've had in, in the world for several hundred years that the earth is not flat, but it's, it's a globe. How does that come to happen? And the interesting thing that I found out about it wasn't so much that, that people just one day decided, you know what, I'm going to believe the earth is flat. Instead, as it often started, and as it often starts with beliefs such as this, it started with just kind of a seed of questioning what they see. I mean, if you look out at the horizon, it looks flat. Um, you think, well, you shouldn't, if the earth has a curve, you should be able to see it. If you get up high enough, you should be able to see it. And they thought that's, that's one of the things. They looked at like, the, the, flights, the flight paths of planes and how it doesn't quite make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense if you're looking at it on a flat map of a globe. But they were looking at that. It doesn't make sense. And so they start researching and they start studying. And since when you start questioning things like this, they kind of get dismissed offhand because it's like, oh, well, everyone believes the earth's round. You just, just, you'll get over it they get more entrenched in this idea. And so this little question that they have grows, and it grows until they are writing books. They're, they're speaking at conferences on how they believe the earth is flat. And they come up with, and, and they have all of these proofs that they say proves this view. And so it was an interesting, it was an interesting documentary. Um, if you're not like me and don't enjoy random things, you probably wouldn't enjoy it as much as I did. But I, I enjoyed it, and it was an interesting study 
in my mind, about doubt. Because that's how it starts. It's a doubt. It's, just, it's, a, it's a simple doubt that someone had. They, they doubted this one thing. And now, however long, it, weeks, months, years later, it has impacted their whole life. Because to believe the earth is flat, you often have to disassociate with a lot of the people that you normally associate with. Um, because it's, it's not a popular view, as I'm sure you probably understand. So it's interesting how doubt can so drastically change the life of someone. And that's what we see in the story of Thomas. Thomas, the character that we know as the doubter. I, I think it's a bit unfortunate for him that his one legacy is that of doubt. And we'll be looking at that this morning. Um, so if you would, we're going to be dwelling on the story of Thomas. And so if you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. Verse 24 is where his story begins. And for you to understand what's going on in his world and in his mind, it's important for you to understand what happened leading up to this event that we are going to read about. In John chapter 19, Jesus had been crucified. He had been put on trial. He had been, well, you know the crucifixion story. He had been put on trial. He had been convicted. He had been sentenced to death on the cross. And we see that in John chapter 19. So at the end of John chapter 19, if the book ended there, very hopeless ending. He's gone. He's dead. But then John chapter 20 starts, and it starts with the resurrection. And the resurrection isn't that everybody that was following Jesus at once found out that he was alive. It started small. In, in John's telling of the account, Mary Magdalene is the first one to find out that Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, in other accounts in the Gospels, we see that Jesus first appears to the women at the tomb. Then, he appears to the, a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then, shortly after that, and what is said in John, he appears to ten of the disciples in the upper room. One of those that wasn't there was Judas. He was not with the disciples anymore. And the other one that was not with the twelve was Thomas. Poor Thomas, right? In the verses immediately preceding John chapter 20, verse 24, Thomas happens to be gone when all of the other disciples see Jesus come into a locked room and display that it is him, he is risen, and he is alive. And so, our story picks up with Thomas discovering this, discovering what he's missed, much like our drama this morning. So let's, let's kick off and read a few of these verses to get into the story. So beginning in John 20, verse 24, and I'm reading from the NIV. Your translation might be a little bit different. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Stop there for a second. Where was Thomas? Like, the, the drama did a good, good job this morning actually depicting a couple of the theories about what Thomas was up to. One, one group of people, there's actually a lot of discussion about this. If you start reading a lot of, like, commentaries and scholarly sources on this, people will have different perspectives on where Thomas was. We don't really get a lot of information. We don't know. He wasn't there. That's what we do know. But it's interesting to think about what might have caused him to separate from the disciples. On the one hand, it could have been he was out to the market getting some food, um, and much like when you're at a movie and you happen to slip out at the worst time, you miss the twist ending. 
Maybe that's what happened. Poor Thomas, either way. Or, as was portrayed by Josiah, Thomas may have been just totally distraught. Well, not may have been. He was totally distraught by what had just happened to them. This is just a couple days after Jesus, their leader, the one that they had been following for so long, was killed on the cross. So, we're not sure exactly why he was gone. Maybe it was on accident. Maybe he had separated from the fellowship of the disciples on purpose because he was scared and he just couldn't be around them and he needed some time alone. We're not sure why that happened. But I do think it's important to dwell on the character of Thomas a little bit. Now, as you might guess, since Thomas is primarily known for this one story, he's not mentioned a lot in the Gospels. There's, there's a handful of times that he is mentioned, and about half of those, it's just kind of a list of the disciples, like, and Thomas was also there. It's, so he doesn't get a lot of front details, not like John or James um, or Peter. But he is mentioned a couple times at a little bit more detail where he at least gets a line of dialogue. Um, and all three of those occurrences happen in John. The, the, the final one that we get is actually this passage in John 20. Um, but if you flip back just a few pages to John chapter 11, we see the first time that Thomas speaks in the gospel. Um, John chapter 11, verse 16 is where he speaks. And now this chapter, John is retelling, John is telling the story of the death of Lazarus. News had just reached Jesus that Lazarus was sick. They waited some time, but then Jesus told his disciples, no, Lazarus isn't sick, he's gone, he's dead. And Jesus was telling his disciples, we need to go and be with him. We need to go and go to Bethany. But if you read a few chapters prior, you'll learn that the last time Jesus was in the Jerusalem area, it didn't go very well. A lot of people were angry at him. A lot of people wanted him dead. And so the disciples were very hesitant. They're saying, Jesus, if we go back, you'll die. We may have gotten lucky this last time, but if we go back this time, you will surely die. And so there's this argument going on in John 11. And then in verse 16, Ch Thomas chimes in. He said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, that's both kind of a, a moving statement, but also a bit pessimistic. We'll find this out about Thomas. He is very loyal. He is very faithful. He wants to be with Jesus and he wants to go with Jesus. But he's also very realistic he knew that Jesus going back to this area was, was a suicide mission. It was, it was going directly into the, the mouth of the lion. And he knew that. But his faithfulness, he's like, well, we'll go with you and we'll die too. So we see this kind of balance. He's very loyal, but very realistic. Very logical thinking, Thomas, in my mind. Flip a couple, couple pages past this um, into John chapter 14. And we see the only other instance at which Thomas speaks in the Gospel of John. 14, verse 5, is where Thomas speaks. And in this instance, Jesus is at the Last Supper. He's teaching the disciples. He's telling them. This is his last time to, to teach and to instruct the disciples. And in this case, he's telling the disciples um, what we know now, that he's going to have to die and resurrect and then ascend into heaven. But... The way he were phrased that the disciples thought, well, he's going somewhere that we can't go with him? That's weird. We've gone with him everywhere. 
Where could he be going that we can't go with him? And I think all the disciples were thinking that. Jesus was speaking a bit cryptically, as he often did. And so in verse 5 of chapter 14, Thomas, again, speaks up for the group. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Because Jesus had just told them, you know the way to where I'm going. And he's like, well, where are you going? What road do we take? Kind of taking Jesus' words very literally, as he often, I'm assuming, did. And he's, he wanted, again, he's showing his loyalty. He wants to be with Jesus. But he's also showing that he takes things very literally, very realistically. He said, well, what physical route do we need to take to go where you're going that we can't go? Like, how is that going to work? He was wondering that. And then that, that verse is followed up by perhaps my favorite verse in John. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very fascinating exchange there. But so we have three times where Thomas speaks in the Gospels. And in all of them, he shows loyalty, he shows faithfulness, but he also shows a bit of pessimism, a bit of realism. And so take that to our main passage this morning in John chapter 20. Thomas is gone. He's not with the disciples when Jesus appears to them. So maybe he was out running some errands. Maybe he had separated from the group because he felt guilty that he hadn't stopped Jesus from coming to his death. Maybe he felt guilty that he had said that we'll die with him, but he was still living and Jesus was gone. Maybe he was afraid because as a realist, he thought, well, they were able to find us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Obviously, someone has been telling them information. Maybe the upper room's compromised too. Maybe they're coming to get us next. There's a lot of theories about where Thomas was. But the point remains, Thomas was gone. And so when he returns from wherever he was, I'm sure the first thing they said is like, Thomas, where were you? Jesus is alive. He's, he's risen from the dead. Much like we had portrayed here this morning. It's exciting news. But Thomas's response is not one of trust, but it's one of doubt. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. If you have the, the ESV or a similar translation, your, your translation probably renders that, I will never believe. Very strong statement of doubt here. Unless I see the proof myself, I feel it, I see it, I will never believe that this has happened. After all, I mean, we, we, we get on Thomas and we kind of say, well, he should have believed more, right? But this is uncharted territory. We have the benefit of 2,000 years past this event in retrospect, reading it in, in the Gospels, knowing the ending to the story to understand, well, Thomas, you should have known better. But this was uncharted territory. Before Jesus, in their eyes, no one that died rose from the dead. Like, that was new. Jesus was the one who had raised people from the dead. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. But now the, one, the only person they've ever known to raise someone from the dead is gone. And he's dead. And certainly someone can't raise themselves from the dead. That's impossible. So Thomas, the realist, is looking at this and saying, that's not possible. You must, be, you must have been dreaming. You must have been hallucinating. Maybe you're playing some sick joke on me. I don't know what's going on here but I will not believe it until I see it. 
And so I think, I, in fact, I, I think that if you put any of the other disciples in Thomas' situation, it probably would have been a similar one. Because when the, the women came and told the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, did the disciples say, great, he's risen, we believe you. No. <laughs> they ran to the tomb and said, no, we, you're dreaming. We've got to go see this for ourselves. And then when the disciples on the road to Emmaus met Jesus, first off, they didn't recognize Jesus for the whole time they were talking. Um, but then they came back and told the disciples, hey, we saw Jesus. We didn't know it was him for a long time, but then we recognized him. They're like, no, that's not it. it. It took until Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room for all of them to finally believe that he was alive. So put any of the other disciples in Thomas's shoes. Poor Thomas. He probably would have doubted the same. Put any of us in that situation. We probably would have doubted, right? So we do give Thomas a, a bit of a hard time because of his doubt. But I think it's understandable, his doubt in this situation. Yet that doesn't excuse the fact that he doubted. And he didn't just doubt, doubt something he read in the paper or heard on the street. He doubted his closest friends that he had been living amongst for years. They had a deep fellowship and he doubted them. So that is deep doubt. The story doesn't end there. Let's continue. Verse 26 in John 20. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I'll stop there. I hadn't noticed this before. Maybe I just hadn't been reading very carefully. But a whole week passes. I feel even worse for Thomas now. Because do you think the disciples told him once, Jesus is alive and then let it be? No. They were telling him constantly. In fact, um, I, I read, someone said that the tense of the, of the previous verse in verse 25 where the disciples told him, it's actually like the, the present, the ongoing, they were telling him over and over and over again, Jesus is alive. And I imagine Thomas came out strong in doubt right away. And I imagine that doubt did not decrease as one week went by. Where, where was Jesus for a week? That's probably what Thomas is thinking. If he was alive, he probably is coming back tomorrow, right? He, wouldn't, he surely wouldn't wait two days. Three days passed. No, he, he wouldn't wait this long. They must be making it up. Day after day passes, and Thomas's doubt, I imagine, grows so much stronger. He's sitting there wondering, starting to think, can I trust these people around me? I don't, I, they must have been seeing things. Whole week passes. That is a hard week, hearing that. I imagine he took many more long walks away from the disciples during that week. Um, and the disciples, they were talking about it. They were, they were constantly, I imagine, talking about it. Thomas was over in, on the sides thinking, they're crazy. I don't know how much longer I can take being in this group with people that are making up stuff. Whole week passes. But thankfully... That next week, Jesus appears in the same way as he did before, doors locked, and he says, peace be with you. I imagine that he said that, it's, it's a greeting, and I imagine he said that because it's kind of, it'd be kind of freaky to be in a locked room and have someone appear. I mean, that's kind of scary. <laughs> Had to kind of calm them down both times to tell them, hey, peace be with you, it's okay, I'm here, um, 
but he appears and he's there. So he greets them. And then in verse 27, he addresses Thomas. Let's read what he says. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. We'll, we'll read the next verse in a, in a minute. Jesus came right away and he addressed Thomas. He knew what was going on. He knew what was in Thomas's heart. He knew what Thomas needed. I, I find it actually quite like, a beautiful imagery. To the very first thing that Jesus said to him is the very thing that Thomas said he needed to believe. Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I'm here, believe. No, he's like, look at the holes in my hand. Put your hand in my side. This is what you asked for. It's the same proof that he showed the disciples earlier. It's the same proof that Thomas was demanding. It's proof that it wasn't just a Jesus lookalike. That's not something you can fake. He was demonstrating to Thomas the exact thing that Thomas was asking for. How many times in the Gospels do we see Jesus give someone exactly what they ask for? I think I can count on one hand the amount of times that that happens. Usually, what someone wants is not what they actually need. And so Jesus, if it's a question or, or a request, he gives them something different that is better and that is more in line with his will. In this instance, the thing that Thomas needed, the doubter, was the proof. The proof that he asked for. And Jesus gave it to him. It's Jesus coming down to meet Thomas where he is, to meet Thomas where he's at, but it does, his statement doesn't stop there. He doesn't just show him the proof and say, there it is. He meets him where he's at, and then he calls him out of doubt, and he says, stop doubting and believe. That's a beautiful imagery of the gospel, right? Jesus coming down, meeting us where we are in our doubt, in our shortcomings, in our failures, and pulling us out into belief. It's kind of that same imagery of Peter when he was out on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee, as, as I'll tell you, it's not a lake, it's a sea. Pulling him out of the Sea of Galilee when he doubted, he looked down and realized that he was walking on water. He's like, I can't do that. And then he started sinking. Jesus came and he grabbed him and he pulled him out and called him to faith. Why were you doubting? Stop doubting and believe. So Jesus understands where Thomas is at. He comes and he meets him there but he doesn't leave him there. He pulls him into belief. He calls him to stop doubting, to stop doubting and to move from unbelief to belief. And so Thomas's response is just that. He responds and he says, my Lord and my God. That is the essential response of the gospel. It's not the gospel response is not about saying the right words. It's not about saying that, that specific prayer that you need to to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is about surrender. And is it about, it's about acknowledging who God is, who Jesus is. And so Thomas, in that moment, his doubt doesn't continue. He doesn't ask for more proof. The doubt melts away. And he says, my Lord and my God. He, he recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes Jesus' authority, Jesus' role, that Jesus is God. And he surrenders to that. 
He allows Jesus to be Lord of his life. That is the essential response of the gospel. And so in an instant, Thomas moves from being the doubter to being a faithful follower once again. It's what he wanted. And I, it, that had to have been an amazing moment to witness. That, that 180 that Thomas made from doubt to faith, from unbelief to belief. And then the story closes out like this in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We see two parts in Jesus' last statement here. First off, there's a little bit of a gentle rebuke. A little bit of a um, saying, You know, it took you seeing me to believe. Some people will say that's a much harsher rebuke than I think it actually is. I think it's a gentle correction. Saying you were in belief, unbelief and now you're in belief. You required seeing to believe. And some people will say that's a very harsh rebuke there. But if you think about it, the foundation of the church is founded upon the witness of the disciples seeing Jesus risen from the dead. If Jesus had resurrected and no one had seen him, that wouldn't have done a whole lot of good. We wouldn't believe that he was risen if no one had been there to see it and to testify and to witness. The Great Commission is about bearing witness to what they had seen. So that disciples seeing Jesus risen from the dead is the foundation of the church. And so, look at it as a bit of a gentle rebuke, but also, I think this is addressed to all of the disciples. Because every one of them had to see before they believed. Maybe one of the disciples was in the background, well, actually, I believed before I... No. They all had to see it, to believe it, to really believe it, and to pass that news on. There were others beyond the disciples that saw Jesus risen from the dead. They are the foundation of the witness that Jesus is alive. But then... Jesus goes on. The second part of the statement is a promised blessing, a blessing to all of those who have believed without being there to see it. I think Thomas probably appreciated this as a, as a logical person, as I'm imagining him to be. He's like, well, not everyone can be there to see the exact same proof I've had. And Jesus passes on a blessing to all of those, all of us, who have not seen in that same way, but have yet still believed. You could count this as one of the Beatitudes Blessed are the ones who have not seen, but still believed. We believe based on the witness of those who have come before. And that is a blessing to us. That is faith. That is trust. And Jesus says that we are blessed for that. So the story of Thomas, it demonstrates doubt. It demonstrates someone moving from well, for one, being in the community of the disciples, missing an event, doubting the event happened, and then coming to believe when he sees the evidence of the resurrection. But I think we do well to just talk about doubt for a little bit this morning. Doubt, I think, is kind of a dirty word in, church, in the church world. Um, we, as an evangelical church, it's in our name, Valley, Evangelical Free Church, one of the foundations of evangelicalism is that we are saved by grace through faith. 
It's not by works. It's not by what we do. It's not by how often you come to church, how often you read the Bible. It's about grace through faith. It's about believing. But even in our evangelical circles, we get caught up in a works-based faith sometimes. We get caught up in an appearance-based faith where we think that God will honor us more if we doubt less. And so, there's a, bit, there's, a, there's a huge stigma around doubt. We feel shame, we feel guilt when we have a doubt. We hide it. Because we think that if, if people looking at us see that we have doubts, then we can't possibly be a good Christian. What are we worth following for? Imagine it this way. When you get on a plane, the pilot comes on the intercom, and he says, well, my name is so-and-so. Thank you for flying whatever airline it is that you fly. I think I know how to land this plane. We'll see how it goes. And then hangs up. You don't want, like, in our world, you don't want someone that has their, your life in their hands to say, well, I think this will go okay. I think I know what I'm doing. You don't want doubt in that case. But our faith is a bit different. We think, we think it's the same. We think that if, if maybe you're leading a Bible study, you're, you're leading your kids, you're leading a ministry here at the church, or just talking with a friend who, who you're helping explore their faith, we think that if we express doubt, then that's a weakness, and that, that that shows that we're not capable of what we're doing. But I actually think, and, and I want to talk about it for a little bit, doubt has some benefits, and it's important to talk about doubt, to bring it out into the open. Because when doubt is in darkness, when we leave doubt in darkness, it grows and it festers and it takes us over. But when we bring doubt out into the open, we strip away its power and there's actually some benefits to it. And I, I want to talk about that briefly. Um, I was reading a, a biblical theology dictionary. Now, that sounds a bit dry, and you're right, it is, but I enjoy it. <laughs> um, I was reading what it had to say about doubt, and they were making the argument that there is some benefit to doubt. They were kind of approaching it from academic terms. And so they said, um, philosophically and epistemologically, doubt helps us in rational inquiry. Makes sense, right? You're all... <laughs> then what they're saying is that in, when it comes to studying what is true, to studying why we believe what we believe, Doubt is helpful because it doesn't, it doesn't let us just accept something because we've always believed it, but it helps us prove why we believe what we believe. It helps us study it. It helps us research. And in that way, it's beneficial. And that's, still, that's, that's very academic. But I think that applies also personally to us. Um, now, you don't have to go out and seek doubt. In fact, I would be surprised if any one person in this room was able to honestly say, I have never once doubted anything in my faith. Doubt finds us. Usually it finds me at about 10 o'clock at night when I'm trying to fall asleep. Um, it finds us. And it, it doesn't take work to, to track it down. It finds us. And so when it comes to our faith, there is an aspect at which when we come out on the other side of a doubt, our faith has grown and our faith is deeper. It helps us understand why we believe what we believe. It helps us look at things differently. It helps us 
to not just assume, but to know and to believe. There is some benefit to doubt. It makes us and our faith stronger. And in fact, I don't think you can really appreciate a deep faith unless you've had deep doubts. You can't appreciate, fully appreciate, like much like you can't appreciate a good summer unless you've had one of these awful winters we've had. You cannot appreciate deep restorative faith unless you've had those dark winters, dark nights of the soul in which you've experienced those deep doubts. And we've all been there. And when you come out on the other side, your faith is so refreshing and it is so renewing. But it may be days, it may be months, weeks, years. So doubt does help sometimes, but doubt can hurt so bad. It can hurt so deeply. Um, James 1, 5 to 6, um, we won't go there this morning, but what it says is that the one who doubts is like a wave tossed by the wind. When you are living in doubt, it's easy to be blown back and forth. And it's no place that we want to, to stay long. Because it's hard. It's very hard. Very hard to live in doubt. It consumes us. It distracts us from God's call on our life. It leads us away from what God wants for us. And that same dictionary that I was reading actually says that a majority of the passages in the Bible speak negatively about doubt because although doubt is beneficial, it is not something we, we want to seek out. We don't want more doubts than we already have. And we don't want to live with doubt. For, we don't want to live with one doubt forever because it tosses us back and forth like the wave. And like the, uh, the movement I was talking about earlier, a little doubt can grow until it changes our whole life and maybe takes us away from our faith. I don't think anyone leaves the faith because one day they just wake up and decide, you know what, totally rational faith, but I think that something else might be better. People leave the faith because they let doubts grow and they let doubts fester. And what may have started out as just a simple question that someone could have helped them answer grows into something that radically changes their, the course of their life forever. So doubt can hurt. Um, and I don't have much time this morning. I do think there are some things that we can do to move from doubt to faith, from unbelief to belief. Um, so I'll go through these quickly. First, we need to identify our doubt. Much like in a battle, when you're in a war, if you don't know what it is that you're fighting against, that war is lost. And if we don't know what it is that we're doubting, I think we can identify it. If we don't know what it is, then that is something that can undermine our faith because we don't address it. We don't know how to address it. So it may not be easy, but you have, to th you have to actually give attention. Don't just push it off to the side. Address it directly. Name it. Identify what it is that you are doubting. Is it, is it something general, like just the existence of God? Is it something specific, like the concept of eternity? That one's kept me awake a lot of times at night. Um, is, it, is it the sovereignty of God? Is it sin? What is it, that it is, that's causing you to doubt? Identify it. Because then, I think what you have to also do, you have to share it. 
First and foremost, we need to share our doubts with God. God already knows what we're doubting, first off, so why hide it? But God can take us, take our doubts. God can take our anger and our frustration and our hurt. He can take it. Read the Psalms if you need proof of that. There's a class of Psalms called imprecatory Psalms, which are basically just Psalms of anger. And the psalmists are pretty open, like stuff that we would not want someone up leading worship to say before they sing a song. We wouldn't want them to say that because it's very angry. But yet, we need to read those psalms because it helps us realize it is okay to bring our anger and frustration before God. He can handle it. Um, so share it with God. Share it with your community around you. You do not have a doubt that is unique to you. We have 2,000 years of church history before us. And if you think you're doubting something that someone else hasn't already thought of, um, well, that would be amazing. <laughs> it must be something very, very obscure. Um, you are not alone in your doubt. That, there is power in sharing your doubt because you realize that the people around you have had the same doubts. Um, a third thing we can do is study it. Like I said, 2,000 years of church history of people who have studied and written and prayed and asked for guidance and direction and who have come together to, to not give definitive answers on everything, but to wrestle with these things. There are books upon books, podcasts you could probably listen to, YouTube videos, documentaries maybe, I don't know. But there are things that you can study out there about the doubts that you have. So if you know what your doubt is, you can research what has been said about this doubt. What sorts of evidence? We, we don't live in a faith that has no evidence for what it is we believe. Jesus is a historical figure. We have proof of that. The resurrection happened. We have arguments, logical arguments for why the resurrection happened. There are so many resources out there that can help you study. But lastly, the thing that I want to close on is wrestle. Not, not literally wrestle with someone else like, like Jacob did, but we have to wrestle with our doubts. In fact, when someone says that they're not wrestling with anything, I get a little bit worried because usually that either means they've given up, which is not good. I hope that you never give up on your faith, never stop wrestling, or they think they have everything figured out, which I think is almost more dangerous. We have to live with, with um, knowing that we won't ever figure everything out. God, we can never figure out everything that God is. There will be wrestling that we have our whole lives. Some seasons will be worse than others. But don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop wrestling. Don't stop fighting. Because when you're fighting, to me that tells me that you're still alive in your faith. It's when you stop fighting that... We should be worried. We should be worried. Those are just some thoughts that I have on doubt. But the main point is this. This morning, we, we looked at the story of Thomas. We see an amazing example of someone who moves from a deep, deep doubt. And in light of the cross, he has changed forever. He believes. And I'm sure... Based on his character, he probably doubted again. 
you probably had struggles again. Church history, um, it's argued, but church history often tell, will tell that Thomas was martyred in India for sharing the gospel out in India. The sources for this are a bit sketchy, so don't have too much stock in any story you hear about what specifically Thomas did. Um, but there is some proof that Thomas went out as a missionary to some, some places that the gospel had never been before, because it was new. So he moved from a period of deep, deep doubt to sacrificing his life for the gospel. And that doesn't mean he never doubted again, but that does mean that his faith had grown deep enough to withstand his doubts. And that's something that I think all of us can hope for as well. Let's close our time this morning in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this season that is leading up to Easter. We thank you for these times that we have as a, as a congregation to examine these stories, the stories of people who encountered the cross firsthand. In the case of Thomas, we see doubt, we see uncertainty, we see I think we see ourselves in that doubt. But just like Thomas, just like you did with Thomas, we know that you come down to meet us where we are and to call us into faith and into belief. So it's my prayer this morning that each and every one here, that in the doubts, in the seasons and periods of, of darkness and doubt, that they never stop wrestling they never stop believing. Because when we wrestle, we're alive. So give us the strength for that. Give us the people around us to help us walk through those dark times. And help us move from doubt to faith, from unbelief to belief. It's in your powerful name we pray these things. Amen.